Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. This month, Partisan Gardens is all about the banana, second only to the tomato as the most consumed fruit in the world. The banana has thus far only been made available in temperate regions through a violent and colonial extraction process led by multinational corporations. Attacks against this system of extraction likely began at least as early as when bananas were first imported into the U.S. in the 1870s and corporations such as United Fruit Company and Standard Fruit became notorious for their repression of both workers and opponents. In one such crackdown, which became known as the Banana Massacre, the Colombian army murdered as many as 2,000 striking workers at the behest of the United Fruit Company in December 1928. Nowadays, United Fruit is called Chiquita International and Standard Fruit has rebranded as Dole. They continue to hold sway over national governments and rule over large swaths of territory. Today, we bring you two different stories of people who are working against the banana plantation and its world, who are trying to destitute Dole in one way or another, so to speak. First, we'll hear a reading of an essay published on Inhabit Territories by opponents of a plantation-style agriculture in Louisiana who are preparing for climate change by encouraging decentralized banana production within multi-species food forests as an alternative to monoculture. Later, we'll hear from anthropologist Elisa Paredes about the struggles in the Philippines for chemical justice by residents of Mindanao's banana belt. After the flood, the forest, on planting bananas in the warming Gulf Coast. Written by Hadley Sells. Subtropicalization. There is a narrow band along the Gulf Coast of Mexico in which banana cultivation is possible, and it's growing, moving northward with climate change, despite occasional havoc by Arctic vortices. The Gulf South region of the U.S. is becoming subtropical. At some point in our lifetimes, large parts of Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia will experience freezing temperatures for the last time. The consequences for plant communities will be drastic. Even in 2011, a NASA computer model predicted 
that by 2100, 40% of land ecosystems would shift, quote, from one major ecological community type, such as forest, grassland, or tundra, toward another, end quote. While essentially all land ecosystems will undergo significant changes in plant communities. As models have consistently underestimated the rate of change, the catastrophes that populate the imagined 2100 of climate futurity appear closer every year. Migration. Plants do migrate, but at varied rates. Without assistance, the slow ones, particularly trees, will disappear instead. In this catastrophic era, the category of invasive species will be less relevant than that of refugee species. The U.S. Gulf Coast is badly positioned for natural migration. Compared to those emerging subtropics of the Anthropocene, which are contiguous with existing subtropical forests, such as parts of the Chinese provinces of Jiangsu, Anhui, Henan, Shanxi, and Gansu, the region's most diverse subtropical forests grow on islands in the Caribbean or on the other side of a border wall and an expanding desert, facing their own disruptions by drought and storms. We can imagine future solidarities that might develop between regions. People in the mountains of a Caribbean island rush to gather seeds and cuttings from the Yunque before the season of mudslides and hurricanes begins sending them in care of migrants who sail past abandoned deepwater platforms in the Gulf and are welcomed at the shore by the keepers of another doomed forest. Mangroves sinking beneath the waves in the Yucatan go to the salt-sick ancient cypress swamps of the Atchafalaya Basin of Louisiana. Cypress seedlings are sent up the river to populate former cornfields in its expanded floodplain. The metric of invasiveness may be increasingly useless in this epoch, but we still have a certain moral responsibility toward any living ecosystem. As with ourselves, the fact that the cypress are doomed does not make it okay to cut them down a day sooner. At the same time, so much destruction has already occurred that migrating species need not displace any ancient forests or wild ecosystems. There are about half a million acres of sugarcane in Louisiana alone, doubled from 265,000 in 1981, averaging 1,400 acres per plantation. Nothing is more invasive than a sugarcane plantation. Not because sugarcane originated in Africa, but because biodiversity is so low in a sugarcane field that it's closer to a factory than an ecosystem. Invasiveness is best defined not by a species' geographic origin, but by its behavior and impact in an ecosystem. Native species can become invasive in disturbed ecosystems under certain conditions. The pine bark beetles destroying forests in the western United States are not foreigners, they are locals exploiting disturbances wrought by mild winters. In any case, the dream of assisted migration of entire subtropical ecosystems remains far away, not only blocked by borders, but obscured by our own ignorance of these systems. Even more important than a deepening of ecological study will be a widening of what is already known. 
It is hard to imagine a society in which only a tiny percentage of the population has any personal connection to plants or the soil succeeding in such a project. The process of planting the forest is also the process of becoming the people who live in the forest. Here in so-called Louisiana, we have participated in motions in this direction. We share two of these efforts, one rural and one urban, to invite collaboration and elaboration. To be clear, neither project holds subtropicalization as a goal to be worked toward, but simply as an imminent shift in the terrain of our struggle to live well and in good relation to the earth and those we share it with. We are planting many temperate native trees as well, like cypress, tupelo, live oak, and sycamore. Our task is not to reconstruct the ancient forest, nor to design the forests of the next century, but rather to support both endemic and migratory species as they adopt their own strategies for navigating this shift. The thriving forests of this century will be complex communities, including migrating plants and endemic plants, each evolving to meet an ever-changing situation, which includes human habitation. Our rural example, called Indian Bayou Food Forest, is situated on a dozen acres surrounded by agro-industrial wastelands. Petrochemical infrastructure crisscrossing commercial sugarcane, rice, and crawfish production. It is an effort to transform a monoculture field into a multi-layered food forest, free nursery, and propagation hub for bananas, fruit trees, and other useful plants. Now is probably a good time to mention that banana trees are not actually trees, botanically speaking. They're the world's largest non-woody plant, more similar to a perennial grass than a tree. This is one reason why bananas are useful in this transition, since they sprout from the root even if they're mowed over, or the aerial parts die from frost, and because each stalk dies after fruiting anyway, an arctic vortex or hurricane force winds don't represent a major setback. Bananas grow fast, able to either shade out grasses or reach tree canopy height to access sun in a forest. Ecologically speaking, we hope they will act as a mid-successional species in the transition from either temperate forest or grassland to subtropical forest. Each stalk produces fruit after 10 to 15 months without a hard freeze. In other words, that narrow band on the map where it's easy to grow bananas is accompanied by a much larger area in which they grow well but don't fruit without an extremely mild winter. This is another reason why bananas are an ideal messenger species for the coming subtropical forests. In the hills of Georgia or the piney woods of East Texas and Western Louisiana, banana plants can thrive and multiply but don't fruit due to freezing weather. Increasingly popular as ornamentals, their eventual fruits will bear undeniable truths about climate change. Destitute Dole. Cloning a banana plant is less of an operation than it sounds like. The banana is busy cloning itself without our help. Left to its devices, one banana plant 
will form a circular clump, spreading year after year. Baby banana plants are called pups. A sharp shovel is used to separate them from the larger clump. As long as one or two roots stays connected to the pup, success rates are very high. A little math. Start with 10 bananas. Take five clones, or pups, from each tree per year. At the end of year five, you've got 77,760 banana trees. It's worth asking, before anyone tries to grow 77,000 banana trees, where will they be planted? The simplest option would be to find about 80 acres somewhere and plant as many as possible. Commercial banana plantations average 800 to 1,000 plants per acre. So we could fit all 77,000 on just 5% the land area of one average sugarcane plantation. To explain why we won't be doing that, and to understand the system we hope to desert, let's take a brief look at life under the regime of a modern banana plantation. In an article in Feral Atlas, Alyssa Paredes, author of Plantation Peripheries, The Multiple Makings of Asia's Banana Republic, describes visiting a woman living adjacent to a multinational-owned banana operation in the Philippines, in Mindanao. Quote, Hieronima had built a hiding place on the bottom level for her and her children to run to when the crop dusters came, but she found that it provided little respite. In the middle of our meal, she disappeared into the garden time and time again, picking up leaves covered in white spots as proof that chemical drift had invaded her property. It made the moringa plants curl, the cacao trees stop bearing fruit, and the chicken in the yard drop dead, she mentioned, midway through our lunch of rice and tanola, a gingery soup made with, well, chicken and moringa, end quote. The chemical mixture is always changing as growers lose an arms race with fungal evolution. As such, the exact composition of the poison dropped from a particular airplane drifting onto one's home is unknowable. From Feral Atlas again, quote, Filipinos living in the vicinity of banana plantations do not know the chemicals by name, but instead refer to them only by color or with the generic term hilo or poison, end quote. The commercial banana plantation sows the seeds of its own destitution more blatantly than most institutions today, spurring the evolution of the fungal pathogens which threaten the entire industry. Paredes explains, quote, Empowered by the conventions of plantation agriculture, Sigatoka's causal pathogen, Mycosferella figiensis morlet, becomes a formidable foe. The densely planted, highly susceptible Cavendish variety provides it with a convenient setting to hop from one host to another, while strong wind currents over the plantation's manicured, low-lying canopy disperse its spores over long distances." End quote. Pathogens thrive in a banana plantation for the same reason they spread in prisons. And as with prisons, this is not our central critique. Prisons which are built to prevent the spread of disease are not what we want. Similarly, even if a universal antifungal treatment were developed tomorrow, we have other reasons to avoid recreating the industrial model. 
Monoculture is only efficient if your goal is to produce as much fruit with as few people as possible, centralizing production in order to control the harvest. Our goal is different, to produce as many human-banana-plant interactions as possible, and decentralize production so that it's within everyone's reach and cannot be controlled. As such, Many of the fruit trees grown at the rural project are being sent to New Orleans to be planted along sidewalks, in lawns, churches, and empty lots. This effort is coordinated by Lobelia Commons, an open collective of gardeners which formed early in the pandemic. They deliver vegetable seedlings, build micro-nursery stands to distribute free plants, help people grow edible mushrooms, and generally try to build a living food commons in the city. The Flood Part of the joy of planting a fruit tree is knowing that the tree may outlive you, providing fruit for many generations. In New Orleans, we content ourselves with the other joy of planting a fruit tree, the part about eating and sharing the fruit during your lifetime. If anything, the looming exodus from the city is motivation to learn collectively how to live and eat well in this region. When the waters finally come to claim New Orleans, the resulting migration will carry with it whatever practices and ideas of communal life are widespread in the city, dissolving the rural-urban divide and determining whether the wider region's process of subtropicalization leads to forests and grasslands which are lush diverse and densely inhabited, home to a thriving people, or if it will lead to deserts and wastelands, a deeper alienation of people from the land and its continued domination by extractive agriculture and industry. In the meantime, we are leaving the planting of trees that only fruit after 10 to 15 years to our friends at higher elevations, and we are propagating banana plants and other trees which also fruit in just a year or two. So I'd also like to explain verbally a little bit this graph that is printed with the piece. And it's basically a standard biome graph so if you just Google biome graph, you can see it. And it basically just has two different axes. The horizontal left right shows average annual temperature. And then the vertical one shows annual precipitation. And then it has these kind of, you know, blobby colored formations labeled as different biome types. Like supposing you're somewhere between 20 degrees Celsius and 35 degrees Celsius average annual temperature. Your options in terms of the type of biome you might be in, depending on the rainfall, would be subtropical desert if you get less than 100 centimeters of rainfall per year, and then moving into tropical seasonal forest or savanna between like 100 and 200 centimeters per year, and then above that point, it's a tropical rainforest. Going down in temperature a little bit, options are going from rainiest to least rainy, temperate rainforest, temperate deciduous forest, chaparral or scrubland, temperate grassland or cold desert. And then as you get 
cold enough, the only options really are tundra. And so the caption on the graph is climate change will shift ecosystems to the right on this graph, i.e. increasing temperature, and either up or down according to its impacts on precipitation. But critically, the precipitation in a given place is not determined solely by global weather patterns. As is well known, the high rainfall in the Amazon basin, for example, is due to evapotranspiration from the exhalations of the rainforest. In other words, the difference between a subtropical desert and a subtropical rainforest can be nothing more than the trees themselves. So just to dig into this a little bit, it's a little easier if you, you know, can be looking at the the graph obviously. So, you know, feel free to google biome graph or something and get this in front of you. Like starting with an example, let's say that you live in a temperate deciduous forest that's kind of like already on the warmer end of that biome, getting up towards 20 degrees Celsius average annual temperature. So with climate change, unless you're in a special situation, which there are places predicted to get cooler, obviously, most places are getting warmer you're going to see movement to the right on this graph. That puts you pretty quickly into the category, assuming you stay at the same annual precipitation of either tropical seasonal forest or savanna. But if you went down in precipitation enough, you might dip down into subtropical desert. And if precipitation were to increase, especially depending on, on if you were already kind of near the, the boundary of temperate rainforest, could become tropical rainforest. So a certain amount of that up-down movement on this graph, the increase or decrease in precipitation is, is obviously going to be somewhat determined by climate change. And looking at this graph can give a sort of bit of a sense of determinism because it's just this very static figure of like, this is the range in which a tropical rainforest exists, this much rain, this temperature, etc., but I think what that does hide is that there are other factors that can reduce or increase rainfall. So without any climate change whatsoever, deforestation of the Amazon would eventually turn it into a subtropical desert. So we know that deforestation moves things downward on that graph. We know that reforestation can move things up on that graph. The lesson here is that regardless of, of how much change we're locked into, there's actually a lot of what's going to happen and how biomes that we live in and the ecosystems that we live in are going to change over the next century that we are going to be the ones determining. And just to bring in one other factor here that I think is quite important, if we're thinking about plant migration and we're thinking about the survivability of particular species in the new climate regime that they exist under, for example, if we have a temperate deciduous forest that's getting warmer, whether it's getting drier or wetter, there's going to be a certain number of trees that are succumbing to new diseases, new pests, dying due to other stresses, maybe outright heat stress, lack of chill hours. And so without any kind of assisted migration to bring other species that can fill those niches to some extent or fill rather the, the new changed niche that exists due to climate change, that'll effectively be deforestation without logging. It'll tend things toward the desert end of this graph. 
if we're simply comparing a, a situation of, of no assisted migration to a situation of vibrant, widespread assisted migration, we're looking at the difference between very different ecosystem types, potentially, just based on whether or not we can maintain plant life to hold the soil, to shade the soil, to cycle water and bring the rain. Next, we have a lecture by anthropologist Elisa Paredes entitled, We Are Not Pests, The Campaign for Chemical Justice in Mindanao's Banana Belt. The talk was initially broadcast in June 2021 as part of the Multispecies Salon, a project of multi-species justice, a lecture series which can be found at multispeciesjustice.space. In this piece, the author describes her time with some of the people living alongside big monoculture banana plantations in the Philippines and explores the multi-species chemical and political interactions at play in the struggle against toxic aerial spraying. Good evening, everyone. Good morning. Good afternoon, wherever you are. It's a pleasure to be joining you all from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Again, like Karen said, my name is Alisa Paredes. I'm a postdoctoral fellow and a rising assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Michigan. I'm an environmental and economic anthropologist, and my work touches broadly on issues of food, industrial agriculture, and transnational trade. And I think about this primarily through fieldwork that I've done on plantation bananas and their trade networks between the Philippines and Japan. So before anything else, I want to thank so much the promise of multi-species justice under the, the leadership of Karen Bolander, Evan Kirksey, and Sophie Chow. It's been a really incredible intellectual space. And I hope that those of you who are watching or will be watching this uh, in the future are just as excited as we are about seeing the volume uh, in print. Like Karen mentioned, the, the chapter that I contributed to this volume is called We Are Not Pests. Uh, and for the purposes of this talk today, I've added the subtitle, The Campaign for Chemical Justice on Mindanao's Banana Belt. Um, and at the heart of the story is the anti-chemical an anti spray movement uh, called Mamamayan Ayosa Aerial Spray or Citizens Against Aerial Spray which I'll be referring to henceforth as Ma'as. Uh, and this is, you know, taken hold uh, over the past couple of decades on the banana plantations of the Philippines' southernmost region of Mindanao. This is the heart of its industrial agricultural zones. So let me begin um, my talk by just saying, by laying out uh, the conceptual thrust uh, of this piece. So my entry point into the movement was uh, actually its slogan. Um, which really captured my imagination. Uh, and the slogan is Dili Mi Peste, uh, or we are not pests. We are not pests. And this was the slogan that activists proclaimed in bold font uh, at their mass demonstrations as they were you know, raising fists and placards uh, with you know, gaunt skull, pictures of gaunt skulls and gas masks. So this slogan um, represents campaign rhetoric and activist strategy that to me at least was provocative, not only because um, it was, it seemed to me unique from other anti-chemical campaigns that I'd seen in the past. Uh, and I'll say more about that in a second here, but it was provocative also because it captures conceptually an observation that I think many of us in uh, the multi-species justice group have shared. Uh, and the observation is that frameworks of multi-species entanglement, relationality, uh, collectivity, and coexistence 
cannot fully account for a the fact that some beings, uh, especially you know historically marginalized uh, human communities, resist entanglement with the non-human as a form of political protest, uh, and b the fact that species divides uh, and hierarchies particularly between the human, the subhuman, and the non-human, and usually in that hierarchical order, uh, are often the fault lines along which political projects are organized and ultimately justice is envisioned. So I think you can start to see how the human versus the non-human divide is core to a political project at hand with a slogan like, we are not pests. Just as you would say in the slogan, I am a man, you know, which are originally used for the Memphis sanitation workers strike in the 1960s, um, but that we've seen resurface uh, in the wake of George Floyd's violent murder almost exactly a year ago now. With these observations in mind, my piece from Mindanao centers on the idea of uh, an ethics of interspecies exclusion. And the take home message is that exclusion isn't always a negative thing, but in fact, sometimes plays a constitutive role as a political intervention and a platform for accountability. And this has implications for what we in this group have referred to collectively as the promise of multi-species justice. So in my time here today, uh, I wanna explain how such a vocabulary of protest, we are not pests, has emerged as locals from Davao City in Mindanao grappled with conditions of possibility and impossibility deeply shaped by the interspecies interactions in and around industrial plantations. And I framed my discussion around three uh, related insights, which I'll discuss in turn. So let me begin, of course, by setting the context. Since 2016, I've done field work on the banana plantations of Mindanao. This is the large island featured on the map in red. And my field sites were located in the provinces of Davao del Sur, Davao del Norte, and Cotabato. And these are uh, on properties producing bananas for a number of household brands that I believe are familiar to us, uh, those of us in the United States, including Dole, Del Monte, Chiquita, among others. So in the course of field work, um, I met a woman who I've given the pseudonym Heronima in the rural outskirts of Davao City. Now, Hieronima lives in a house not more than five meters away from a plantation where a multinational corporation grows Cavendish bananas for export to Japan. Now, twice a week since the year 2004, crop dusters have weaved through the sky above Hieronima's house. These bright yellow planes are loaded with chemical fungicides, uh, and they release about 30 liters of milky colored trails for each hectare of plantation land. With 68,000 hectares dedicated to the cultivation of Cavendish bananas, that's an estimated 2 million liters of fungicidal mixture for every spraying. So aerial spraying is an agricultural method that's used in Davao and its surrounding regions, uh, but it's been banned in the provinces of Bukidnon and Cotabato for reasons I'll return to uh, further on. Invisible and untraceable by modern managerial schemas, the chemical fallout is carried by the wind beyond farmlands onto houses, home gardens, schools, public roads, and water sources. Residents along the plantation's periphery find chemical residues on their clothes and in their laundry, um, on the fruits and vegetables they grow in their yards, and in the water drums they use for cooking, drinking, uh, and doing the dishes. Now, Heronima has never been a plantation laborer or a packing house employee. 
And yet twice a week when those crop dusters came, she saw her life become entangled in a production system to which she had no formal connection whatsoever. Now I was over at her place for lunch one day uh, and in the middle of our meal, she disappeared into the garden. She was disappearing to the garden time and time again, picking up leaves covered in white spots as proof that chemical drift had in fact invaded her property. So aerial spray has a way of forcing you into a constant state of anxiety and surrender. And I discovered this on a separate occasion when I found myself under the sprays. Eyeing the plane in the distance and hearing its engine drone past, I resigned myself to the fact that there probably wasn't going to be any use running anywhere. I remember wondering why I didn't smell anything as the light mist fell quietly around where I stood. Suddenly, I felt it, this insidious kind of buzzing sensation that crept up my nasal cavities, buried into my head, and then fell into my eyes as teardrops. For hours after, I was shuttling back and forth between an unbearable lightheadedness and the weightiness of an, having an invisible presence in my skull. Now, ever since that experience, I swore to myself that I would, um, I swore that I, I sensed a hint of an unidentifiable, unnameable sort of something else uh, in the air most days that I spent uh, on the banana plantation. And I promised myself that I would never return for field work on a day of spraying, only to, of course, realize soon after that there was literally no way of finding out what the spraying schedule was until I was already there to read the billboards on the perimeter. Uh, and on several occasions, such as the one uh, depicted in this photo, there was nothing written on the billboards at all. So the sense of unknowability really characterizes everyday dealings with the chemical sprays. And in fact, in the earlier days of my fieldwork uh, around Davao City's plantations, I noticed uh, an intriguing pattern that folks in the community tended to know the chemicals not by name, uh, but rather by color. So to quote one of uh, Jeronima's friends who I'll call Paz, in a day there's the white chemical. Then the next week we have the blue, then the green, then the yellow. The yellow helps the plant bear fruit the least toxic is the yellow. She's actually talking about fertilizers here. Uh, while the most toxic is the white. The white is for eliminating pests, end quote. So virtually everyone on the periphery referred to the chemicals in this way, right? Or else resorted to generic terms like hilo for poison or a medicina for medicine. This is a co very common thing. So these terms take the place of active ingredients and trade names such as mancozeb, chlorothalonil, or propiconazole. Now, one woman who had worked in a packing house for a Japanese company explained the practice to me saying, only the supervisor and the mixer knows what's in this. The chemical content changes all the time. It was only later that I would find out that she was referring to something called the chemical cocktail. Uh, and that is uh, a key element to the story. So I want you to hold on to it for me. So a year after um, the sprays had started, Hieronima decided that she had had enough of these dreadful residues. And unable to escape the chemical showers, even in the shelter of her own home, she called in other local residents, also members of Davos City's rural communities. And together they established what would become a nationally controversial campaign, Mama Mayan Ayos Aerial Spray, or Maas. So from the year 2005 onwards, the Maas campaign really exploded across the plantation-dominated landscape of Mindanao. Raising fists and placards, the protesters adopted a provocative rallying cry that I've described for you earlier, one that encapsulates both the unknowability of environmental harm and also the sense of compromised human dignity. I am not a banana, and we are not pests. 
or in Tagalog, the national language of the Philippines, hindi kami peste. And in the regional language of Bisaya, dili mi peste. So like I mentioned earlier, I was intrigued by these mantras as they struck me as different in tone from some of the other anti-toxics campaigns that I was familiar with. So since the publication of Rachel Carson's expose on DDT, this is an infamous insecticide, we've seen a worldwide proliferation of accounts on the hidden human and environmental dangers of biocides. Just to give a few sort of notorious examples, DBCP or nemagon, endosulfan, chlorpyrifos, and glyphosate. Uh, known more commonly as uh, Roundup. So while many of these chemicals remain in regular use in agricultural settings around the world, lively civil movements have risen up for a call to ban chlorpyrifos, to call for a stop to glyphosate and the end of death by nemagon. So I want us to pay attention to the small difference in rhetoric between a slogan like stop glyphosate and we are not pests. So one is focused on a toxic chemical. The other is focused on a state of being, pestiferous life, the state of being made to feel as if you were a pest. So how do these reflect a difference in the experience of environmental harm and in visions uh, of chemical justice? So one local writing on the Ma'as campaign in a local newspaper elucidates what I'm getting at in stark terms, and she deserves to be quoted at length. And as I read it out, I want us to listen for, you know, human versus the human versus non-human boundary drawing, as it'll be key to what um, I've described earlier as this ethics of interspecies exclusion. So here's a quote. Detergents and soaps have chemicals. They need to have chemicals to remove stains. We dip our hands into them when we wash the, the dishes, and they cannot kill us unless we drink them. But if I go around lugging a tub of soapy water and drench a passerby against his will, then I'll get into trouble. Not because the soapy water was toxic, but because the passerby didn't want to be drenched. Saying, that's okay, friend, it's not poisonous after all, will not get me out of trouble. Banana pesticides have chemicals designed to kill banana pests. Why are some people insisting that they can spray pesticides on people who never asked to be sprayed, even with water? Simplistic, yes, it's all about my right to say, I don't want to be sprayed, end quote. So I think these words reflect what I've called here as an ethics of interspecies exclusion, right? The desire here is for human non-human boundary drawing at a moment of compromised human dignity. Such a rallying cry does important conceptual work for us. It elucidates something um, about the experience of chemical pollution, and it expresses a particular vision of chemical justice. However, it also brings us into difficult sort of political and ethical terrain as scholars of multi-species justice, right? It insists on anthropocentric rather than collective ecological justice. For, you know, what are the slogans, I am not a banana and we are not pests, but concessions to spray non-human beings so long as humans are left unharmed. So the question that kind of I was left with as I was thinking about this campaign is why this choice of rhetoric as opposed to say something more akin to stop glyphosate? And the first insight that I want to share with you all today is that multi-species dynamics shaped this language of protest. 
on Philippine plantations, feral proliferations, both of dynamic fungi and of unruly chemical particles meant to control them, has had bearings on the shape of activism and the language of protest. So let me elaborate on this point. So the basic thing to understand about aerial fumigation on banana plantations is that it's done to kill a fungus, one that causes a leaf spotting disease called black cigatoka. So empowered by the conventions of industrial agriculture, the cigatoka fungus becomes a formidable foe. The densely planted, highly susceptible Cavendish banana variety provides it with a convenient setting to hop from one host to another. And strong wind currents over the plantation's manicured, low-lying canopy disperse its spores over long distances. So everywhere that this virulent pathogen has emerged, commonly used fungicides have become less efficacious, if not entirely useless, with the passing of time. So at first, the industry responded by increasing the frequency of spraying schedules. But when they realized that that was only helping the fungi develop resistance, they came up with a more sophisticated strategy. They introduced something called the chemical cocktail, which you'll remember me mentioning earlier. So a chemical cocktail is a mixture of several different fungicides rotated semi-randomly. And by applying fungicides not as solo chemicals, but in a rotating concoction, these cocktails effectively confuse the cigatoka fungus and prevent it from developing tolerance to any one agrochemical. But here's the catch. Chemical cocktails also confuse people. And because they confuse people, they serve a very important political purpose in that way. They disable the public from knowing what exactly is being sprayed when. And that's why, as you'll remember, people tended to know the chemicals by color or by generic terms like hilo or medicina, and almost never by name. So without knowing what those individual active ingredients were, Davao locals basically had no way of figuring out what was causing what. So when activists first conceived of the Ma'as campaign, it was clear that theirs would have to be a movement against the agricultural method of aerial spraying itself, regardless of the content that's being loaded into them. So in response to ecological conditions wrought by the multi-species dynamics that I've just described, Ma'as became a fight not for tighter chemical regulation, think stop glyphosate, right? But rather a defense of humanhood tied to the right to what scholars have called molecular privacy or molecular sovereignty. That is the right of a human individual to have a say in what his or her body is exposed to or absorbs. The question of toxicity aside. Again, it's not about the soapy water being full of toxic chemicals. It's about being drenched against your will. So Ma'as chose to protest not a toxic object per se, but a compromised state. The state of being made to feel subhuman as cheap fruit for devouring or pests for eradicating. I am not a banana and we are not pests. So the figure of the subhuman has a long colonial legacy that I won't have time to elaborate on, but suffice it to say for now that reducing subjects to the state of animality uh, or objecthood has long served as a tool for forms of colonial conquest operationalized by the plantation form. Let's move on now to the second insight. The second insight that I wanted to share is that modes of protest shaped by multi-species dynamics run up against regulatory paradigms. So allow me to like state that differently. 
there are chemical regulations as well as governing bodies like the Fertilizer and Pesticide Authority in effect in the Philippines. While they're set up to protect communities from you know, the harmful effects of chemicals, they operate on paradigms that are inadequate at responding to the ecological conditions that I've described and consequently to activists' appeals emanating from the ground. So Maas's particular mode of argumentation, emphasizing human dignity and molecular sovereignty over toxic control, has had purchase among communities on the plantation's border. Now, with goals and you know, leadership in place by the year 2006, the anti-aerial spray protest became a weekly endeavor and soon snowballed from 30 individuals to 30 jeeps full. Demonstrators painted their faces bright fire engine red and drew trails of black tears from their eyes, demanding an end to poison rain. But as we'll see, their demands for humanhood built on molecular privacy ran up against prevailing legal structures for chemical control in very problematic ways. So at first, the movement was met with some success. In 2007, after a few months of campaigning, former Davao city mayor and current president, Rodrigo Duterte, signed a historic city ordinance banning aerial spraying. So quick to retaliate to the ban was the Filipino Banana Growers and Exporters Association, or PBJA. This is a group of major banana companies in the country. So in media reporting, PBJA insisted that aerial spraying was in fact the safest, most effective, and most accurate method of chemical application. And that continues to be their stance until today. Arguing that the ordinance was an unreasonable exercise of police power, members of PBJA launched legal cases at the Regional Trial Court and the Court of Appeals. And after a mixed set of rulings, Davao City the Davao City Council and Maas elevated the case to the Supreme Court of the Philippines in 2009. So at a number of these hearings, Jeronima's neighbor, Dagohoy, an elected leader of Maas, was present to testify. Now, I met up with Dagohoy several times, and he recounted the experience to me, saying, the question to us from banana plantations was whether we could provide scientific evidence. What is written down, they said. If you got sick, where are the medical records? The banana industry demanded that the allegations of banned supporters be substantiated with objective fact, not just psychological and emotional tactics, to cite a PBJA representative who's quoted in a newspaper article. So let me be clear about what's happening here. Maas was confronting the fact that by referring to broad categories like spray, toxic rain, and chemical showers, over more specific active ingredient names and particular forms of bodily harm, they simply could not provide the correlations and causations deemed necessary for legal or scientific argument. Now, where, where mass activists lived in Davao's rural outskirts, an area separated from the main thoroughfare of the city's urban center, there were no technical prosthetics to identify the sprays. Instead, people had only the bodies of dead and dying plants and animals to see the chemical drift made manifest in transubstantiated form. You could tell that the sprays had gotten inside when the cacao trees stopped bearing fruit, when the moringa plants started to curl and the chicken in the yard dropped dead. This is what Hieronima told me. Chicken are to plantations as canaries are to coal mines. But human bodies are very complicated. In fact, you know, in my conversations with them, when Maas members listed the changes that they saw in their bodies and in the bodies of their children, the list grew infinitely long and increasingly severe. 
And in my conversations, they linked everything from rashes, asthma, bloated stomachs, stunted growth, and enlarged sexual organs to male sterility, paralysis, diabetes, cancer, and sudden death to these toxic sprays. So modern regulatory institutions are built on a different kind of rationality. At the heart of chemical science, both in terms of its regulation and in terms of activism against it, is the push to establish a cause and effect relationship between exposure on the one hand and manifestations of harm on the other. In legal cases, medical investigations uh, and scientific experiments on toxicity, the singularity of that cause is key. Now, scholars of science and technology studies have pointed to the epistemological paradigm within chemical science that portrays chemicals as discrete and isolated entities. Now, this notion of chemical discreteness in turn organizes environmental regulation in such a way that results often in blindness to the realities of cumulative, chronic, interactive, and low-level exposures, precisely the kinds of chemical exposure one might expect with aerial spraying. It also results in regulatory paradigms that are regrettably reliant on damage-based research and risk assessment, especially in the case of multiple or mixed chemicals for which there is simply no available data. So where activism operates within these regulatory paradigms, sometimes there can be varying levels of success in litigation. And we see this playing out in the case of banana plantations in Nicaragua and Costa Rica, for example. When the nematicide DBCP or nemagon, nematicide is a pesticide that's used to control nematodes. DBCP or nemagon, when it could be singled out, exposed workers could trace the devastating links to male infertility. Now, afectados could then build a scientifically authoritative case, engage public support, and eventually win widespread, though relatively small, compensation from the state insurer. In many respects, however, the DBCP case is more the exception than the norm. And many researchers from environmental anthropologists to chemical geographers have noted that victims of chemical fallout regularly find themselves in situations where demonstrating causal relationships is simply impossible due to spatial and temporal lags. So in 2009, the Court of Appeals in Cagayan de Oro declared the Davao City ban on aerial spraying as unconstitutional. The ruling demonstrated that legal structures formatted around the particular evidentiary politics that we've heard about are simply not built to meet Maas's demands, nor to the realities in and around the banana plantation. The decision would mark the beginning of PBJ's legal triumphs in the succeeding years. Finally, um, the third insight that I want to share with you all um, is actually something that I've like struggled to, to phrase a little bit, so please forgive me. And it goes something like this. An ethics of exclusion might operate on a hierarchy of life that prioritizes the human over the non-human, but capitalist logics are not beholden to the same. On August 16, 2016, Maas received crushing news. The Supreme Court of the Philippines had declared Davao City's ordinance banning aerial spraying as invalid and unconstitutional. The decision was based on three legal grounds, but here I want to mention only one. So the court justices deemed the ban in violation of the Philippine Constitution's Equal Protection Clause, which states that no person should be denied the equal protection of the law. Here's some language from the ruling, which I'll summarize. The Supreme Court basically saw it unclear that the broad banning of an agricultural method 
irrespective of its content, so irrespective of whether it's chemical or otherwise, would bear any relation to alleviating human and environmental damages. I personally see this as a nefarious warping of people's constitutional rights. Until this day, export bananas is the only agricultural industry in the Philippines that employs the controversial method of aerial spraying. There remains to be no specific government laws regulating its use. Aerially sprayed bananas continue to pass all the necessary safety standards for import into Japan, which is a country where food regulation and food safety is meticulous. So I visited the Gohoi, this is one of the, one of the leaders of the movement, uh, to talk about the Supreme Court decision. And he opened our conversation in a most curious note. Do you know any artists? He asked me. He said he fantasized about commissioning a satirical depiction of the Supreme Court with animal heads on their shoulders. So for him, there was a bitter sense of irony that the same government should recognize an aerial spray ban on provinces like Bukidnon and Cotabato. There, provincial ordinances had been motivated by corporate demands to protect not exactly its residents, but the livestock industries. So reflecting on this turn of events, Dagohoy turned to me to say, I see the justices of the Supreme Court as animals, as water buffalo, cows, goats, and chicken. In the entire province of Bukidnon, they banned aerial spray in 2001. Why? Because there are piggeries and poultries, cattle ranches, and livestock, because this is a business. They cannot spray because they would kill off the chicken. Is that how the justice system is going to be here in the Philippines, where animals are more favored than people? They have the hearts and commitments of beasts." End quote. So at the time of our conversation, I interpreted this uh, comment as Tagohoy's sort of poetic move to reclaim his human dignity in the hierarchy of animals. But at the heart of it was also a rub, right? How fortunate that Bukidnon should have precious livestock, the Gohoi reflected, as it seemed that only commodifiable crops or animal lives were deemed worthy of government protection. Here in Davao, all we have are people. So throughout the campaign, activists' disavowal of the state of animality and of the state of the subhuman has empowered victims in their pursuit of dignity. At the same time, however, this came at the stinging realization that if only human lives had been awarded the kind of value that commercial livestock had, then perhaps the Supreme Court would have ruled in favor of their protection too. So now to conclude. In this presentation, I referred to an ethics of exclusion embedded in a slogan such as we are not pests. To call attention to the practical materialities of more than human entanglement and the ways that they limit a political action. By describing the Ma'as campaign, I argued that when operating within such contexts, as well as within the limited legal frameworks and delimiting capitalist logics, justice can often be an exclusionary project and species divides the fault lines along which those exclusions are understood, organized and contested. What results, as we have seen from the case in Mindanao, are competing claims over inclusion in the ambit of justice. For many people, this is a matter of course, when the divides between the human and the non-human and between life and non-life 
distinctions that are taken to be natural grow ever less distinct. Chemicals, prime technologies for the control and containment of microscopic life, render tenuous their use against pests and their use against humans as pests. Such precarious boundaries are a matter of life and death, as they render as up for grabs the question of who or what in the social hierarchy of beings deserve protected life. These are everyday points of contention on the plantation, one of modernity's prime institutions for deciding which forms of life are made to live or let to die and in whose name. So I want to end on a note that I've returned to time and time again in my research. Everyone I've, I've encountered on the, in the course of fieldwork has a stake in the continuation of industrial agriculture and the plantation form. In fact, the one thing that didn't seem open to debate was the form of the factory farm itself and its particular ecological conditions and arrangements that dehumanize and create the need for protest in the first place. As long as the plantation as we know it exists, we will continue to have to confront questions about the dignity of certain forms of biological and ecological life at the expense of others. Thank you so much. Thank you to Hadley and Elisa. We'll have a link to Hadley's article, along with a link to Elisa's full talk, on our website, partisangardens.org. If you have a project or idea that could be featured on our program, please reach out to us at partisangardens at wfhb.org. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.